Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. I'm not sure where the catchphrase, follow the money, originated, but it's a powerful pearl of wisdom. Whether influencing a politician, uncovering a business scam, revising government regulations, or even a war, if you follow the money, you'll find the culprit. For example, in the Afghan war, America spent $300 million a day. Where did all that money go? Not to the Afghan people, where 90% live on less than $2 a day. Who wrote the book on this topic? It would be decorated Marine Major General Smedley Butler. And the book? War is a Racket, written in 1935. Let's follow the money. Well, hello, everybody. We're off to another podcast with our good friend, poet, author, veteran, and official friend of the show, because Bill Earhart has been on our podcast twice now. And um, just to, to remind you, we are doing this as an audio with Bill, but uh, we'll, we'll uh, Greg and I are on video, and we'll be adding some pictures and things uh, to the podcast. So uh, welcome, Bill. Well, thank you very much for having me again. And again, I apologize for doing this only by audio. Uh, for folks who are listening in, I am I am a a techno dinosaur, uh -huh. um, and video Zoom video gives me the total creeps. Uh, it reminds me of Max Headroom and Twenty Minutes into the Future. Um, my my ancient desktop computer won't even do Zoom. So uh, fortunately, Greg and Pat were uh, gracious enough to allow me to do this by audio only, and I apologize for that. Well, there, there you go. I, I need to tell people why, uh, why we have you on the show. Greg and I read the book uh, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines and the Making and Breaking of the American Empire. It's a great book. It's been out one year, and we were going to get this author on the on the podcast, and then we realized that you probably know more about Smedley Butler than he does. And in our last podcast, you mentioned that you taught at a high school for 18 years, which was the same high school that, or same a private school that Smedley Butler went to, and that through the years, you have become quite a um, expert on the man. And uh, that's why we're having you on the show. We just this is this is going to be more than more nothing against Jonathan Katz. He's a very nice man, but I think you're going to uh, tell better Smedley Butler stories, perhaps. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm not sure that I know more about Butler than than Katz does. Uh, his book really is very very good, uh, but I certainly have a kind of um, at once removed personal connection to Butler uh, that Katz doesn't have. Um, I guess I might as well explain that at this point. Um, when I was at Paris Island, South Carolina in the summer of 1966, becoming a Marine, um, we learned the names of two Marines who had both won the Medal of Honor and had lived to tell about it. One of them was Dan Daly. The other was Smedley Butler. Um, but so that's what I knew about Smedley Butler until the Reagan wars in Central America. And then I stumbled onto Smedley Butler again, only in a very different context. Most of Butler's, much of Butler's military career was spent in the Caribbean and Central America, uh, fighting the banana wars, they're called. Um, and of course, we were making war on Nicaragua in the 1980s, thanks to Ronald Reagan. Um, and Butler resurfaced at that point because late in his career, and I think you're going to play the clip or uh, uh, something, where Butler talks about uh, having been a gangster for capitalism, a racketeer for Wall Street, and went through this scathing critique of American foreign policy in Central America. Um, so that was my, they, they neglected to tell me that part at Paris Island. 
I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period, I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National Citibank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interests. I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit companies. In China, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best that he could do was operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. War is a racket. It always has been. A few profit and the many pay. But there is a way to stop it. You can end it by disarmament conferences. It can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had a poster of Smedley Butler hanging in my classroom at the Haverford School for Boys from the first day I started teaching there in the early part of this century. Um, and it turns out, and I knew this at the time, Smedley Butler was an 1898 graduate of the school where I taught. Back in those days, it was known as the Haverford College Grammar School. Uh, it has since become the Haverford School for Boys. But uh, I, you know, I, so I had this poster of Butler hanging up. And uh, the whole time I was there, a number of years later, I guess I'd been there for at least 10 years, maybe a little longer, and an alumnus who had graduated in 1969 uh, was doing research on something else, but he stumbled upon Smedley Butler and discovered that Butler was a graduate of the same school he had gone to. And he wrote to the headmaster, a guy named Joe Cox, uh, who had hired me. He wrote to Joe and said, how could I have gone to the Haverford School for 13 years and never have heard of this guy? And Joe said, oh, you should talk to Bill Earhart. He's a big Smedley Butler fan. That's how I got drawn into this whole thing. Uh, eventually, the guy's name was Fred Housel. Unfortunately, he died a few years ago. He's younger than me. Um, but Fred, uh, with Fred's money, he, had to, he was fairly well to do. With Fred's money and Joe Cox's support, I resurrected the memory of Smedley Butler on the Haverford School campus. The reason that Fred had never heard about him is that in the middle 1930s, the early 1930s, Butler became a very vocal critic of what today we would call the military industrial complex. Didn't have that name back then, but he became very outspoken against American foreign policy. And that's when he said all that stuff about having been a racketeer for capitalism. And he, he said he could teach Al Capone a thing or two. Al Capone operated in three districts. I operated on three continents. Um, that, that whole bit, well, back in those days in the 1930s and well into, the, <laughs> well deep into the 20th century, the Haverford School for Boys was basically a bastion of white Protestant Republicanism. And folks on the Philadelphia main line made their money partly by supporting the military industrial complex. So when Butler came out against all this stuff, he was perceived as a traitor to his class. And I'm saying class in the Marxist term of, you know, economic um, stratification. Butler was perceived as a traitor to his people and they wrote him out of the history of the school. He ceased to exist as, as a, graduate of the Haverford School. He was completely buried. Mm -hmm. um, and so along, along comes, I come, and with Fred's, Fred's money and Joe Cox's support, we resurrected Smedley Butler's memory on the Haverford School for Boys. Fred gave the school a pile of money, and the classroom that I used for years was 
was the dedicated Smedley Butler classroom. It still has a brass, a bronze plaque hanging on the wall uh, dedicated to Butler. There is a, an oil painting uh, that a student did, uh, almost full-size color oil portrait of Butler in uniform hanging outside of the upper school admissions office. There is a bench on the campus uh, it's a, a six-sided bench going around a tree on the campus, and it has six brass plates that describe Butler's life. Uh, I wrote the text for those. And for several years, about three or four years, I taught a course, a uh, senior history elective called uh, Smedley Butler and the Rise of American Imperialism, through which we traced Butler's life everywhere the Marine Corps sent him. Why is, why is he being sent? Why are the Marines being sent to Panama in 1903? Why are the Marines being sent to Nicaragua in 1908? All the way through his life. Um, unfortunately, the, the history electives, you know, when I retired, uh, that was my hobby horse. And other history teachers um, will not pick up that course. They want to do their own special lease. So the tour course itself was only, I think, three or four years I taught it. But in any case, uh, Butler's presence is now quite tangibly there on the Haverford School campus in the form of in the form of the dedicated classroom, the big oil painting portrait that a kid named Bo Collins did, class of 2012, and the Smedley Butler bench, which is out by the field house. So. So, so that's Bill, the story of my connection with so, Smedley Butler. I didn't know about Smedley Butler until um, uh, Greg turned me on to him uh, a year ago, and then we, you know, what's so interesting is he's born in 1881 to Quaker families in Pennsylvania. His parents were very affluent, uh, involved in politics and senators and so forth. But he, he joined the Marines at 16, lied about, wanted to go in the army and they wouldn't take him, but he wanted to join the Marines to fight in the Spanish-American War, remember the Maine. And prior to that, and Greg, you probably know more about this history than I do, we really weren't involved in a lot of imperial wars, but Butler was involved in all of them, yeah. Spanish-American. Philippine, Boxer Rebellion, Banana Wars, Honduras, Central America, World War I. He, as a Marine, fought in all of these, all of these wars. And not only fought, he was he was quite a remar remarkable uh, soldier. And uh, Bill, I, I think that you can, you know, you, you said he was a twice uh, decorated with the Medal of Honor. I don't think people realize what a BFD that is. Well, let me give you one statistic. I no. looked this up. There have been 16 million Marines served since the beginning of the Marines until now, 16 million. There are only 299 Medal of Honor recipients in that period of time. So they hand these things out very, uh, it, it's quite, quite remarkable, but to have two of them is even more so. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Well, you've, you've actually raised several really important points. <laughs> One is, uh, you're saying that Butler, we hadn't, up until Butler was born, we hadn't been involved in many imperialist wars. You have to remember that for the first, up until the, uh, basically the final crushing of uh, Native American resistance at Wounded Knee, uh, the United States, the Anglos had been involved in imperialist wars from the time that the, the English separatists stepped off the boat in, in uh, Massachusetts. We were in the process of creating a continental empire. Those were wars of imperial conquest. And um, you, and also don't forget the uh, you know the War of 1812 was really uh, to clear out the Indians from the American Southeast so that they could plant cotton in that area between uh, Georgia and the Mississippi River and into Texas. You've got to remember the war 
the war against Mexico was an imperialist war. We took half of Mexico. So you're wrong to say that we were not involved in wars of conquest, of wars of imperialism prior to uh, the Philippines, because we were. We were building a continental empire, but it was an empire nonetheless. Uh, and we had taken everything we wanted. Uh, we weren't interested in the rest of Mexico. We just wanted the part that went out to the Pacific Ocean. And we tried to take Canada three times and got our asses kicked all three times. So we had basically expanded the United States into as big an empire as we could make it without going overseas. And that's when you get to the period you're thinking of. Right. Uh, and yes, Butler was involved in all of those things. Um, you also have to understand the Medal of Honor was not quite what it is today. Um, the Medal of Honor was originally created during the Civil War, and it was given to any soldier, any Union soldier, who captured a Confederate battle flag. That's how you won the Medal of Honor, period. Um, it was not available to officers until uh, just before the First World War. Um, and Butler received the first of his two Medals of Honor for doing an undercover spy operation uh, where, he, where he snuck across Mexico posing as a, I think a railroad engineer or something, not, not a dr train driver, but a, you know, a structural engineer, um, went in civilian clothing and scoped out Mexico City to see how prepared they were <laughs> to repel an attack. And Butler himself, when they gave him a Medal of Honor for that, he, he said, I'm not wearing this. This is bullshit. I didn't do anything. And essentially, his bosses told him, you will wear this or we will court-martial you. Yeah. Um, so he didn't even think he'd done anything to deserve his Medal of Honor the first time. The second one, he was actually involved in some very heavy combat in Haiti. Um, but And Butler was, in fact, a, um, a very courageous uh Marine, not a soldier. He, he was a Marine, uh, which is not the same as a soldier. Right. Um, he would actually have gotten the Medal of Honor as a as a 17-year-old lieutenant in China in the Boxer Rebellion, but in 1901, officers were not eligible for the Medal of Honor. He led a patrol in which all six of the enlisted guys got Medals of Honor. And, but Butler couldn't get one because they didn't give them to officers. He got what was called the Marine Corps Brevet Medal. Here's another thing you should remember about the Medal of Honor. Uh, there were 26 soldiers who received the Medal of Honor for the massacre at Wounded Knee in 1890. Wow. Jeez. Ponder that one. <laughs> so it, <laughs> over time, the Medal of Honor has become more prestigious uh, than it used to be. Um, so all of that should be kept in mind. Uh, what, but Butler was a, a scrappy guy. He loved to fight. That's the thing that's so fascinating about him um, is he was Quaker, but there is apparently a branch of, of uh, some Quakers. It's an individual decision whether to be totally pacifist or not. Both of Butler's grandfathers fought in the Civil War even though they were Quakers. But they felt personally that the slavery was a greater evil than fighting against it, than picking up a weapon and fighting. And uh, Butler came from that kind of a background. He actually used in his household, both growing up as a child and when he was an adult, within the household, they used the Quakerly thee and thou instead of me and you pronouns. Um, so he took his Quakerism seriously, but he was not of the total pacifist brand. When Butler joined the Marines, uh, the meeting that his family belonged to, Westchester meeting in Pennsylvania, uh, they threatened to write Butler out of the meeting, basically throw him out of the meeting, out of, out of the congregation essentially. Uh, because he had joined the Marines and his mother, because they were so powerful, as you had pointed out, that his father was a congressman. Uh, Butler's mother said, if you if you throw Smedley out of the meeting, I'm going to start my own meeting and you won't have anybody coming to yours. And so <laughs> so the Westchester meeting backed off 
and never expelled Smedley from their meeting for worship. But uh, you know, it's it's an he's an interesting character. He was writing letters to his father, who was a powerful member of Congress. Uh, long before Butler retired, his father had become the chairman of the Naval Affairs Committee in the House of Representatives. And he was writing to his father uh, from Central America in the early part of the 20th century. You know, what are we doing down here? He's saying to his father, this is bullcrap. All we're doing is screwing screwing up the local people and making the bankers in, in New York City rich. This is stupid. Right. And this is when he's, you know, 20, 21, 22 years old, a lieutenant, a captain. And this is what he's writing to his father. And yet he stays in the Marine Corps for a total of 34 years. How do you he, explain that? You know, remarkable he, remarkable he, uh, story, you know. He, he uh, uh, his background, his family background, you know, both his grandparents and his father were prominent politicians on both sides of the family, both grand, grandfathers. And so he clearly is solidly, solidly entrenched in the in the in the highly regarded U.S. ruling class, the trusted ruling class, and yet uh, they viewed him as a traitor, a class traitor. And I think, but that 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 uh, that entrenchment kind of explains why he was approached by the Liberty Leaguers uh, when they wanted to have a coup against uh, the yeah. Roosevelt uh, administration. Uh, well, you're that, you're, why they you're jumping him ahead. So you're really jumping ahead historically by about 30 years. Um, I was talking about 1903, 1904, 1905, when a young Smedley Butler is writing these letters to his father saying, why are we doing this? This is terrible right. stuff. But why? So why does he keep doing it for 34 years? I think it's because he simply liked to fight. He liked the adrenaline excitement of combat. And he doesn't really begin to speak out against any of this stuff until he reaches a rank and an age where he is no longer going to be deployed in the field as a fighter. That's when he decides, well, I don't know, war is a racket, as he wrote that book. He's a comp complicated guy. He loved to fight. And yet he recognized that this was you know, counterproductive in terms of America's interests. Now, why did in 1933, why did um, the, uh, the DuPonts and Morgan and those guys who were trying to overthrow Roosevelt, why did they approach Butler? Well, originally they had wanted to approach um, MacArthur. But they understood that that the, the troops, the men who had served under MacArthur, hated him. He was a bastard. He was an asshole. Um, so they knew that he, he'd never get uh, – he'd never be able to rally the troops around him. And, of course, the DuPonts and Morgan and those guys wanted – they were going to use the American Legion as the shock troops to uh, pressure – Roosevelt into basically stepping down the same way that Mussolini had used the black shirts in Italy in 1922 in the March on Rome. That's what these guys wanted to do 10 years later. Um, they recognized that um, MacArthur would never be able to rally that kind of support among ordinary rank and file veterans. But they realized that the veterans love Smedley Butler. So, of course, he'll, he'll be the perfect second choice. What they misunderstood is that Butler loved democracy and America, and he wasn't about to engage in something like that. So that it was almost a comedy of errors. If you let's 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 come know. let's come back to that. I want to and we're, we're jumping around here, but let's let's start with this, which is the book uh, "War Is a Racket," and right, and this is what he's famous for. And this is written in 1935. So he'd already gone through the Boxer Rebellions, the Banana Wars, all the different oh, things. You know, he'd gone through all of that. And he wrote this 40-page pamphlet that was uh, War is a Racket, Who Makes Profits, Who Pays the Bills. Uh, it's, a, it's a short, short book that is essentially 
the the first expression that the military industrial complex and a lot of people are making money on war and the servicemen are the ones that suffer for this and this is the this is the what he's noted for and uh, prior to that i don't know bill do you, had had people expressed this before so honestly saying that oftentimes uh, if you follow the money uh there's a lot of people that make money on war and a lot of people are harmed but the people making money seem to have this the say in the matter I, well actually yes in the late 1920s there was a a senate uh investigation i believe it was called the nye committee n-y-e uh after the chairman of the committee who was a senator named nye uh and they actually investigated the armaments industry during the first world war and clearly demonstrated that uh, the arms industry had made a fortune off the war at the expense of a whole lot of dead Americans. Uh, so this was this was not something surprisingly new. It was it was in the public domain. Um, how much attention ordinary Americans paid to the Nye Committee's hearings and conclusions, I I don't know. I know it's made. You know standard history books, um, and you do know that during, or you may probably know that during the 1920s and well into the 1930s, there was a very powerful uh, peace movement, the Ox the Oxford Pledge, that originated in England, and and you had millions of people uh, taking the Oxford Pledge. We will never resort to war again. We will never pick up arms again. Um, and that was that was very strong in the late 20s and well into the 30s. It, it was international, largely American and British, but um, so people were aware of this. What was so fascinating, you know, when Butler came out with this thing in 1935, it, it's not like it was suddenly front page news in the New York Times. Uh, people didn't pay much more attention to that than they had paid to the Nye Committee hearings. Um, it, I mean, you know, it's just, it's kind of depressing, but ordinary people are too busy keeping a roof over their heads and keeping their children fed and in clothing. Uh, most Americans don't pay much attention to this stuff and never have. It's just the way it is. So you say Butler is well known for his war as a racket, but I don't think there were a lot of Americans in the 1930s who could have told you any who had ever heard of it. Right. It was published. The article he wrote was originally published in a socialist magazine. He voted for he the first Democrat he ever voted for. He was raised as a Republican. The first Democrat he ever voted for was Roosevelt. And in 1936, he didn't vote for Roosevelt. He voted for the socialist candidate. I think the guy's name was Norman Thomas or something like that. But uh, Butler Butler moved very distinctly to the left after he retired from the Marine Corps. And the so. and and the parallels of someone kind of at the end of their career being honest, having nothing to lose, and then you have Eisenhower who did his famous speech of concern about the growing military industrial complex, same thing. Well, um, the problem with Eisenhower though, is he never did a goddamn thing about it. Um, I think more of the guy who, uh, oh, who was the guy who started the, uh, the Navy, the Navy Admiral, uh, Admiral LaRock, I believe, who, who uh, became very involved in the nuclear freeze movement in the 1980s. Uh, became oh. very outspoken against nuclear weapons, but only after he retired. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, well, here's here. This is a a fun fact. I got this from Julian Assange, 2011. He did a little quip. We're talking about the Afghan war. In the Afghan war, we spent three hundred million dollars a day. For the 20 some or 18 some years we were there. It was the second poorest country in the world before we came. When we left, it was the second poorest country. 90% of the people live off $2 a day or less. 
And of all of that money that we spent on the Viet on the Afghan war, the vast majority went to one of five national defense contractors. And so Julian Assange basically says that the war was just a way of funneling money from our coffers to the military industrial complex. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Is, is Julian Assange well, of course. right I mean, or wrong or what? What, what, what's, what I, well, this is not a surprise. This is what war has always been. It's what, how do you think the DuPonts made their money? What, what made the DuPont family filthy rich? It was selling munitions to the U.S. government in the First World War. That's where they made their money. This is, this is not a surprise. Uh, we all like to think we live in a democracy, but we really live in a kleptocracy. And uh, the powerful, um, those with the money own the government. And it doesn't matter, you know, we've expanded the right to vote from what it was in 1789 to what it is today, but it hasn't changed the essential power structure of the country. And this is something that is actually uh, crosses uh, national and international lines, and it doesn't matter what form of government you have. Um, there's actually a French political philosopher who came up with something called the Iron Law of Oligarchy. And his argument, and he supports it absolutely with facts, is that no matter what kind of government you have, monarchy, uh, aristocracy, democracy, doesn't matter what you have, power will always, within three generations, devolve to a small controlling elite. And that small controlling elite has the money because money's what makes government run. It was true in Rome in the second century BC. It's true today. So this, this you know, Assange is not saying anything that's surprising. But what are people going to do about it? I don't know. I mean, look at how many people got involved in the anti-war movement during the Vietnam War. And what changed? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's worse now than it was when we were kids. Uh, so, I mean, I don't say – it seems to me we got into this when I was talking to you guys before, that everything I have to say is really fucking depressing. <laughs> but, you know, what Assange is saying is not – it's not rocket science, of course, true. Um, and essentially, the you know what we've been involved in for all of our lifetimes, and it's gotten worse since Bill Clinton was president, but he didn't start it. It's it is a massive transfer of wealth from the middle class to the rich elite, and that takes the form of government contracting. You know, when they say we spent X billion dollars in in uh, Afghanistan. That money wasn't just burned up. They didn't just throw it into an oven and burn it. That money went into somebody's pocket. Every time you fire a cruise missile, it costs something like $48,000. Um, so you got to buy a new cruise missile. And who are you giving that money to? That's going into somebody's bank account. And it's not going into your bank account or my bank account. It's a transfer of wealth from the bottom up. But that's been true um, as far back as you want to look. It, what, do you, what do you think, Greg? Is, is Bill a, a well, crazy old, crazy yeah, old I mean, coot or is he a I generally seer? agree, but I, I think I generally agree, but I think uh, it's not so much a, a subjective or personal motivation of greed. It's what what fuels the economy. I mean, since 1937, when the economy went into a crap hole. Um, after it had recovered to some extent in the Great Depression, it collapsed again. And so what pulled it out? I mean, the, the, the story, I mean, the line, the, the, uh, what you learn in the, uh, in the school books is that uh, Roosevelt's New Deal pulled it all out. It wasn't, it was military spending. Military spending in the late 30s with the rise of Nazism, the threat from uh, the emerging threat from Japan and others, that, that exploded. And so the ruling circles in this country learned. They learned military Keynesianism. What really will pull us out of any kind of mess we're in, financially, uh, uh, economically, is military spending. And that became, after World War II, uh, they expected another depression because the new, the new war was over. 
massive numbers of people coming back without jobs. So they kept the Cold War going. The Cold War was essentially a response to, to the capitalist economy. It always flounders without, without a push. That's what uh, Keynes taught us. And so military Keynesianism in the 50s and into the 60s, the Vietnam War and on, um, continued to be a driver of our economy. And then, of course, uh, after the end of the Cold War, we had to manufacture new enemies, and we did. We're on drugs, what? we're on terror, et cetera, et cetera. So it, as long as it's functional, as long as it's a functional part of our economy, it's going to be loom over us, and we've got to change people's minds about that. We've got to bring that understanding to people. But I, I would argue that military spending is actually... Uh, the least efficient way to grow an economy. Um, when I, you know, when you build a, a Hellfire missile uh, and then you fire it and it blows up and it's gone, it, it doesn't do anything to kill people. Then you got to buy another one. But if you build a truck, that truck can do things. If you build a steam shovel, that steam shovel can do things. If you put your money into a uh, upgrading the the rail system you can give people jobs working on the rail system it it's you know once the, the the upgrade is done now you've got this functioning railroad that needs to have workers running it uh, you know the idea that military spending is good for the economy i just disagree with that it's well, actually well, not no, good it, for the economy well no of course it's not but if you if you face that reality that you just told if you actually look that square in the eye you can only draw one conclusion. That is, we need socialism because capitalism will not allow that. And that was the well, lessons yeah. of 37. That was the lessons of 45, the lessons of 1991 after the Cold War. Capitalism will not allow that kind of an economy. So you have to commit no. yourself to socialism. And that's, that's what people uh, don't want to hear. They don't want to hear that. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They, they want to have, have uh, a society of inequality, of very rich people and the middle class. They want a middle class, but they want very rich people. And to have that, you have to you have to have capitalism. So I don't but, see any but, other answer but socialism. Well, the thing is, you know, as as I said, Butler became um, a socialist. By the end of his life, he was a socialist, and before Roosevelt even. Uh, got into office, Butler himself was publicly advocating uh, universal health care, uh, what amounted to social security, guaranteed incomes. Uh, Butler was, was advocating stuff that uh, was too radical for FDR. Right. Uh, he, he had become a socialist. And here's the thing, but when you look at the American people, and uh, this goes back to Pat saying, you know, Butler was known for his wars of racket. Well, he wasn't known for that. And Butler ran for public office. He, he ran for senator in Pennsylvania uh, at least once, maybe twice. But he, he was never elected. In spite of the fact that he was very popular personally, he never won a political office because most Americans didn't agree with, you know, they thought socialism meant you're going to be like Joe Stalin. And that's obviously they still think that today, but that's because of American uh, ignorance. And I, I mean, I hate to say it, but most Americans, you say socialism, socialism would benefit as Greg certainly knows and you do Pat, Socialism would benefit most Americans. I love it when I hear people say that um, uh, Biden's, you know, Biden's a socialist. He's trying to ruin our, our our social security system. I mean, I've really had right wing people say, "Keep your hands, keep the keep the government's hands off my social security," and they don't even realize that's socialism. Um, but. Well, you know, uh, I, every time I, I, I talk to you guys, I end up depressed. We should give a look. I mean, the example you give of Smedley Butler is inspiring. And it's and you're, I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, I, I, it's something you overlooked, I overlooked. But the trajectory of Smedley Butler was towards something beyond capitalism. The trajectory oh, very of much Martin so. Luther, 
Martin Luther King, before he was assassinated, was something beyond capitalism. And maybe that's why he got assassinated. Trajectory of Malcolm X when he was assassinated was going beyond capitalism. Maybe that's why he got assassinated. Maybe that's why the character assassination of Smedley Butler was so critical uh, for, for, for the right to go forward. But, but we see a lot of great people like this. And I think that's inspiring. Yeah. When, they, when, they, when they look at things, they don't start off being a socialist or being a radical. They start off wanting to see things better. But they end up running against these roadblocks again and again. I can imagine Smedley Butler being approached by, I mean, his, I think it was his, uh, one of his, his grand, grandmother, uh, aunt, an aunt of his, worked for, uh, uh, had doings with, uh, she was a lawyer, had doings with the DuPont family, I think worked on some of their, their legal work. Can you imagine the DuPonts approaching him and saying, look, we can't have this, these, this radicalism that Franklin's bringing. It's like, a, it, it, it's like an opening to him. It's like, wow, we've got to go beyond this. You can see where America hmm. has to go. So it's inspiring to have the Kings and the and the Malcolm X's and the uh, and the Smedley Butlers. It's really inspiring for us. Let's 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 talk about two things: uh, the uh, Bonus Army, and then from that, let's go into the um, the business plot to overthrow the United States government, which. Uh, <laughs> Rachel Maddow recently had a podcast on that called Ultra, which was the number one podcast on uh, iTunes, mm. and and Smedley Butler's in the middle of it. So talk talk about the Bonus Army uh, first, and why. And this also goes to why people hate McCarthy so much. But uh, tell tell me about that. Well, actually, McCarthy goes back even further than that, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll let that one go. Um, what? Uh, the bonus marchers were uh, the World War I veterans had been promised a bonus payable in 1945. Now, this is in the days before Social Security. There was no social safety net. When you retired, it's a, if you had any savings, you were lucky. Uh, so they, they set up this bonus for World War I veterans to be paid in 1945 when many of them would then be retiring from the active workforce and they might need the extra money. Well, in 1932, uh, a whole bunch of veterans, uh, thousands of them actually organized and came to Washington uh, to petition Congress. Uh, their argument was, our families are starving. We need the money now. We don't need it in 1945. We'll be dead by then. Please pay us the bonus now. The House of Representatives voted to release the bonus early, but the Senate adjourned without voting on it. This is in the summer of 1932. So all these veterans are camped out. There, there's uh, thousands of them on the Anacostia Flats down by the Potomac River, uh, where they have since built the Jefferson Memorial but that was uninhabited, uh, uh, basically marshland in 1932. They had built a tent city. They used to call these things Hoovervilles. And they had also occupied uh, a number of abandoned, unused federal buildings in Washington itself. Uh, Hoover told MacArthur, who at that time was chief of staff of the army, Hoover ordered MacArthur to remove the veterans from the federal buildings in Washington, D.C., but he specifically ordered MacArthur not to cross the bridge into this tent city along Anacostia Flats. He said, do not go in there uh, into the veterans' encampment. Um, by the way, uh, um, MacArthur's, two, MacArthur's chief of staff was Major Dwight Eisenhower, and MacArthur's head of the cavalry and, and armor tanks was Major George Patton. Oh. And oh. MacArthur ordered Patton to cross the bridge and go into the encampment. They burned the encampment to the ground. Uh, a couple of people, an infant died of uh, tear gas inhalation. Um, there have been mixed reports about whether or not another veteran 
died, but he he for he went in there with tanks and cavalry and drove these veterans out um, against Hoover's specific orders and apparently Eisenhower claims that he tried to give you know MacArthur look Hoover Hoover said here's a written order and MacArthur said I don't have time for written orders um, the arrogance of the man is astounding but what's really interesting is that those men in Anacostia Flats and they had their families with them these were guys who had been under MacArthur's command in France during the First World War. These are the men MacArthur himself commanded, and he has now attacked them. Uh, in fact, when Roosevelt heard about this, the first thing he said was, I'll be the next president, because he knew that this was going to resound badly on Hoover, which it did. Um, but that was, and, and of course, before who before McCarthy went in or MacArthur went in and drove these people out, Butler had gone down to Washington and he actually camped out with the veterans. Uh, I think you have that clip of him speaking. He's standing on top of a car right. saying, this is the greatest display of Americanism I've ever seen. Uh, they call you bums now. They weren't calling you bums in 1917 and 1918. Makes me so damn mad a whole lot of people speak of you as tramps. By God, they didn't speak of you as tramps in 1917 and 18. No. Take it from me. This is the greatest demonstration of Americanism we have ever had. Pure Americanism. I know who's made this country worth living in. It's just you fellas. People like you. Remember, by God, you made this country worth living in. And don't. Allow anybody to tell you differently. When you exercise your right of citizen, which is voting, remember this, that everybody who's not with you is against you. There's no such thing as a middle court. If anybody's with you, he'll say so. And if he doesn't say anything, he's against you. And when you go to the polls, lick hell out of him. Make any difference what he is. This is not a business of party. This is a business of the people. It isn't a question of whether it's right for you to have the bonus or not. Things don't go that way. It doesn't go by justice. It goes by vote. And if you want your bonus, you get the vote. And you can have ten times the bonus to get the vote. Um, so he very much supported the bonus marchers and was, of course, outraged. That's why it was actually the um, treatment of the bonus marchers, which is why um, um, Butler made up his mind to vote for uh, Roosevelt for the first time in his life, voting against the Republican candidate. And he voted for Roosevelt in 1932. And, and that, it, that was the bonus marchers. And, and at the end of his career, uh, Eisenhower was ashamed about what he had done. MacArthur was proud of what he had done because oh, yeah. according to him, these people were all communists. These people were, uh, were a threat to our democracy because uh, they, he, they were part of the red, red tide according. I mean, to, if you can believe that, these are World War I vets that are starving during the depression but they needed to be crushed because there was a threat to our government by this, this red, red wave that was coming through. Um, I don't know, is that, is that relatively accurate? Yes, but mm -hmm. you have to remember that uh, those in power do not exercise their power by telling themselves, I'm greedy, I wanna stay on top, I don't care what I have to do. I'm going to I'm going to act in my own self-interest. Uh, powerful people always convince themselves that what they're doing is in the best interest of the country. So they say these guys are all coming. I mean, you know, during how many times were members of Vietnam Veterans Against the War in the 60s and 70s accused of being communists? Right. Um it's what you do. Adolf Hitler didn't get up in the morning and look himself in the mirror while he's brushing his teeth and say, I'm the most evil son of a bitch that ever lived. 
he convinced himself that what he was doing was the right thing to do for the best interests of Germany. Well, that's what MacArthur did. That's what all of these, it's what happens. Um, it, it is human nature to find ways to justify acting in your own best self-interest. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Uh, so sure, I'm sure MacArthur thought they were all communists. Um, I'm sure that the DuPonts thought that uh, Roosevelt was a was a communist who was going to destroy America and by the way, you know, destroy their wealth and power. But that that's that's, that's not really why we're doing this. We're doing it because we love America. That's that's what they do. By the way, here's an interesting point also about the plot to seize the White House. Um Butler, you know, when Butler listened to these guys long enough to get enough information to understand what was going on. And he was never approached by the DuPonts or J.P. Morgan. Um, it was always through intermediaries. When Butler thought he had enough on these guys, he went to Congress and reported this. So, and they so, actually so were back, back, back up, back up a little bit. You've yeah. got McCormick, J.P. Morgan, Prescott Bush, DuPont are all very um, concerned that Roosevelt is taking us down the wrong path. And so they want to literally overthrow the United States government and install uh, a, you know, I don't know, a, a, a authoritarian fascist Yes. people that will run the country. I mean, this is a pretty big story, I, I, I think. It's a huge story. A huge story. And, um, and that's where that's where Zellick, uh, <laughs> that's where our friend Smedley Butler shows up again in history. Tell us, yes. tell us about this. Well, he, you know, they, they decided these guys were smart enough to recognize that uh, MacArthur was very unpopular among the rank and file. And um, their plan was to use the several hundred thousand members of the American Legion as literally the shock troops. I don't, are you familiar with Mussolini's black shirts and the March oh, on yeah. Rome in 1922? Right. Printy. Yes, we are. Okay, uh, well, that's what these guys wanted to have a march on Washington with these hundreds of thousands of members of the American Legion led by Smedley Butler. And what they were going to do was to, they, they were hoping to pressure Roosevelt into essentially stepping aside. He would remain president, but he would no longer have any real power. It would be like, uh, you know, all through Mussolini's reign, uh, 20, 23 years or whatever it was, uh, there was a king. Italy had a king who was the head of the state, uh, but but the king had no power. Well, that's what they wanted to do with Roosevelt is kind of push him to the side and put in place, and they had some name for it, the director of security or something like that. He would have been a dictator. That was what they wanted to do. Now, they chose Butler because they knew he was very popular among the rank-and-file uh, soldiers that he had commanded, and he did command army soldiers during the uh, First World War, among others. Um, they, but they misjudged Butler's character, and he learned as much as he could, and then he went to uh, the House of Representatives. His father was dead by then, but uh, he reported this. He said, this is happening and you should know about it. And they had hearings. Um, and they called these these middlemen that Butler had been dealing with, called them to testify, but they never called the DuPonts uh, or, or Prescott Bush or uh, J.P. Morgan, never called the big boys to testify in front of Congress. But Roosevelt knew about what, you know, Roosevelt, of course, was in on all this. And he pulled aside these hotshot businessmen and said, I know what you're doing. And if you don't back off, I'm going to ruin you. And they took the warning and 
faded back into the woodwork. Um, so they never testified. However, one of the members of that committee, you will recognize this name, eventually became the Speaker of the House of Representatives. A junior member of that committee was Tip O'Neill from Massachusetts. Mm. And after O'Neill retired from Congress, and before he died, he publicly said that everything Butler had told that committee was true. But, it was but, at, all but at, the, true. at the time, they were trying to make him out as being a nut, right? Yes. As an yes. old coot, right? Yeah. So, he, so they, make him out, they make him out to be a nut, and it turns out he's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and he was right about how far up it went. You know, they could only they only got these middlemen who were like nobodies. I don't even remember their names, but it really did reach up into the highest levels of the American economic elite. And um, so Butler was right about that. I appeared before the congressional committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men, which would be able to take over the functions of government. I talked with an investigator for this committee who came to me with a subpoena on Sunday, November 18th. He told me they had unearthed evidence linking my name with several such veteran organizations. As it then seemed to me to be getting serious, I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institution. I want to retain the right to vote, the right to speak freely, and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. No dictatorship can exist with suffrage, freedom of speech, and press. And, and, uh, and Butler uh, was right about Mussolini, too, that destroyed his career. Like he was the second highest Marine, and he was making statements about Mussolini that got him into a lot of trouble and destroyed his, destroyed his career. Tell us about that. That's another good Well, statement. it didn't quite destroy his career, uh, although he did get into some serious hot water by publicly calling fascists a murdering dog <laughs> and uh, <laughs> calling Mussolini a murdering dog and, and accusing him of running over some little kid uh, with his car. Uh, and it was a it was a big international scandal. Mussolini demanded an apology, and the uh, the Italian ambassador in Washington made a big fuss. Um, and actually, Hoover was going to court martial uh, Butler. Butler was still on active duty at the time. And he, uh, he, he, he was ran over he ran over a kid, and then made the statement, "Oh, it's only one life." And that's yes. What, what does one and, life matter? And that's and that's what Butler recounted in just sort of an offhanded expression yes. of what a of what a jerk Mussolini was, which was kind of a fragile political thing to say at the was, time. Was he in line to so, be commandant at that point? Was he supposed to be the, the Marine Corps commandant? Well, no. See, here's the thing that that incident didn't really uh, ruin Butler's career because Butler had made a lot of enemies. He he didn't like armchair generals and admirals. Uh, increasingly, the senior levels of uh, Army and Navy, including the Marines, uh, were being staffed by graduates of the service academies. And Butler called them academic flag officers. Uh, and Butler, of course, never got out of, he, he graduated from high school, and that's as far as he ever got. But but Butler did a number of things during his career that should have gotten him court-martialed. But because his father was the you know chairman of the of the House Naval Affairs Committee, nobody would fuck with Butler. So he got away with at least three three times in his career where he did things that would have gotten any other officer fired, court-martialed. Um, 
But when Butler's father died in 1927 or 28, then Butler no longer had somebody covering his back. And the people that, that Butler had turned into enemies uh, had their revenge. And the reason Butler retired from the Marines is because he knew he would never be appointed commandant. That was the only thing left, you know, the only feather that he didn't have in his cap. And when they appointed a new commandant who was a junior officer to Butler, but who was a graduate of the Naval Academy, Butler realized that he would never be commandant. That's because Butler had so many enemies in Washington that the Mussolini thing didn't ruin his career. It was the fact that um, once his powerful father was dead, there was nobody looking out for Butler's interests. And his enemies were able to have their revenge. And just like you said with Tip O'Neill later said everything that uh, Butler said in the um, testimony before the, you know, on the overthrow of the yes. government. It, Afterwards, they said everything the butler said about Mussolini turned out to be accurate too. This, this oh, yeah, hundred percent correct. He he ran over a kid and made that and made that comment. What's one life? Yes, kept hey, going. Hey, hey Bill, I, I have a question for you. When you when you recount this to youngsters, like when you were teaching, how did they respond? I mean, did this like really uh, open their eyes? I mean, surely it did. No, I mean, I don't know. It's, you have to remember that I was teaching 16, 17, 18-year-old teenage boys. Mostly they're thinking about, am I going to be able to cop a feel off Mary Lou this weekend? Um, how am I going to, am I going to be a starter on the lacrosse match tomorrow afternoon? They're, you know, I I don't know how many of them. Nothing I ever taught these kids you know, like totally cause them to rearrange their whole worldview. It's just, it's not what teenage kids do. Um, I am sure that a great many of them, and my teaching was not just with Smedley Butler. I used to do this in everything. I used to do this in my English classes. You know, I'd, I'd tell them stuff they'd never heard in their lives and never imagined they would hear. And they'd go, wow, that's amazing. But it doesn't, it's not like they, they decide, you know, instead of, instead of becoming a Wall Street uh, trader, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the Peace Corps. I mean, I never had that impact on a kid. These are teenage kids. So it's, you know, I hate to be depressing, but um, what I, you know, what I hope with some of these kids is that a few of them somewhere down the line will make better decisions because of things I taught them. Right. But I certainly don't think that I ever changed the course of a kid's life by what I was teaching. It just, you know, they're kids, they're teenagers. What the hell? I had an English teacher who was in the Marines and he did everything he could to keep me from uh, joining the Marines. And when he called me over to his house uh, and he told me, you know, he was trying to talk me out of joining the Marines. Um, he wanted me to go to college first. And I'm sure he's thinking that by the time you've grown up a little bit, you, you're not going to want to go to this war. But, uh, but what I remember from that night is that he told me that even though he was in during the Korean War, he had never deployed to Korea. And I distinctly remember my reaction to Mr. Deal telling me that was, oh, gee, you weren't a real Marine. You never got to fight. That's how a 17-year-old kid responds to that kind of stuff. Right. It's it just so, uh, I, you know, I know that I've had kids tell me that it was the most interesting course they ever took, but it doesn't mean that it, it well, well Bill, I'm just maybe, not that important. Bill, maybe if you would have taught critical race theory rather than Smedley Butler, you know, you would have had more of a, a impact on this. But I did teach critical race theory. I taught U.S. history for 18 years, and go. critical race theory is U.S. history. Yeah, that's, okay. that's what it is. Yeah, I was, and right. that's what I did. I, I was wrong again on that one. Uh, hey, it's hey, Bill, would you would you uh, um, uh, take us out with a poem on your uh, poem at Smedley Butler's grave? 
Sure. Uh, Butler's buried not too far from me, and I finally went over and checked out his grave. And it's interesting, you have this poem on your website, but it's not titled. <laughs> it's called Ed Smedley, so, Smedley Butler's Grave, isn't it? Yes, it's pretty pretty uh, unimaginative title. It's Smedley Butler's Grave, and of course the photograph of me at Smedley Butler's Grave. So here I am with Smedley Butler, Major General, Maverick Marine, Old Gimlet Eye, the Stormy Patrel, two-time Medal of Honor winner. Me, a sergeant with a purple heart for doing nothing but getting hit. Don't kid yourself, there's nothing heroic in that, just bad luck. Yet here I am at Butler's grave. But why? Well, we were both Marines, there's that. And he graduated in 1898 from the school where I taught decades later for 18 years. And he wrote a book called War is a Racket in which he concluded to hell with war. How can you not love a guy for that? That's the call. Perfect, Bill. That's great. Hey, thanks again for coming on. You know, your first podcast, I gave your book away, bought another copy and gave that book away too. I have a lot of vet friends that have corresponded with me about um, your, huh. uh, your book. Thank you for your service, your poetry book. And just, I want to well, thank you for uh, having such a powerful influence on a lot of my friends that um, uh, were- Well, you're welcome. You're very welcome. And keep buying the book and giving it away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, good to talk with you. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you again. Bye now. See ya.